Seven literary tweets about drones today, Thursday, January 24th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Today we examine the Obama administration's evolving policy on drones. We also hear from a writer who tweets about their impact on civilians. And we hear from a former drone pilot who took a long ride in the desert before going to work. It takes you from your house, from your family, from the the dishes and the cleaning of the car, and and it gives you time to adjust uh, to where you're going to be effectively entering a ground control station in a combat zone. Plus, is the mafia in Italy really investing in renewable energy? Anytime there's money involved, you're not going to find the mafia far behind. And in this particular situation, that's exactly what happened. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We focus today on two big stories about the military. Later in the program, we'll speak with Captain Zoe Bedell, a Marine reservist who is part of the push to lift the ban on women serving in combat roles. But first, we continue our investigation into unmanned aerial vehicles, or drones. The United Nations today launched an investigation into the impact of drone strikes on civilians. The inquiry will focus on the legal implications of so-called targeted killings, particularly when civilians who were not the target of a strike end up dead. Though many countries use drones in a variety of ways, the U.S. remains the chief user of targeted drone strikes right now. And just like nuclear weapons after World War II, the world is watching us as we improvise rules for this relatively new weapon. The problem so far is the new rulebook has been developed mostly in secret. Daniel Clydman of Newsweek and the Daily Beast interviewed hundreds of U.S. officials about drone policy under President Obama. That was for his recent book, Kill or Capture, The War on Terror and the Soul of the Obama Presidency. Clydman says Obama's attitude toward drones has changed over the years. His evolution on on drones is not completely a a straight line. Um, His very first experience, in fact, three days after taking office, was a drone strike that had gone badly awry in which uh, a number of uh, innocent um, uh, Pakistani uh, Muslims were killed, um, and he was quite upset by it. He had heard during the transition that these were such precise and surgical weapons, and yet here he is in his first uh, days in office presiding over the deaths of, of innocent Muslims. He was quite upset by it. But over time, he became convinced that it was a very effective weapon, uh, and he came to rely on drones uh, more and more. How did that happen? I mean, to, to have that incident so uh, soon into his first term that, that really upset him and then a, a complete change of heart. What, what was kind of what changed his mind? Well, he called in uh, the CIA, uh, the then holdover head of the CIA, Mike Hayden and his deputy, to find out what it what had happened. Um, and, uh, you know, they explained to him, Steve Kappas, who was the deputy CIA director at the time, explained to him that, uh, you know, as effective as these tools are, they can't lift the fog of war entirely, and sometimes mistakes are made. Uh, over the course of the next uh, few months, the CIA's program uh, led to the uh, you know, taking off the battlefield of a significant number of high-level Taliban and, and al-Qaeda terrorists or suspected terrorists, and uh, the president was quite uh, impressed with you know, the, 
at least tactical abilities of that program. Um, on the other hand, uh, there were things about the CIA's drone program that made him uncomfortable when he came in. Um, one of them w was the fact that um, he does not sign off on individual drone strikes. They have standing authority to go after targets. And I think that made him uh, quite uncomfortable. In fact, after that very first uh, drone strike on his watch, uh, which had gone awry and led to the deaths of innocent uh, Muslims in Pakistan, he looked for ways to pull that program into the White House. Mm. There was an enormous amount of resistance from the CIA, and he ultimately relented. So the relationship um, has been a complicated one. He's mostly been very supportive of the CIA, uh, but he's, uh, he's certainly raised questions and had some concerns. Right, and those distinctions have been, I don't know if it's media hype, but tell us about this famous kill list the, the White House allegedly has, a list of targets it wants dead. Do, does it exist? Does it cause you discomfort? And is it part and parcel of the drone program? Yeah. First of all, it's important to understand that there are two drone programs. There's the CIA's drone program, um, which we've talked about. With regard to the military program, um, Obama decided that he wanted to sign off personally on each of those targeted killings. Since uh, President Obama has kind of final say on this list, have you been able to get inside Obama's head in any way uh, in kind of uh, what kind of individual targets uh, actually get on that list? Yeah, I, I have, um, and, and I write about it in, in my book. Um, there was a case in, I think it was in 2011, uh, where uh, David Petraeus, who was then the, the head of uh, uh, CENTCOM, had proposed a number of targets in Yemen. The president dialed back the list, um, and there were a couple of people who he said he didn't want them to go after. Um, then um, in the middle of the operation, Haas Cartwright, the vice chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, got a call from Petraeus. Petraeus said, look, we've got a, uh, a clear shot at this individual, but the president has said we couldn't go back. I'd like to appeal that decision. I'd like to go back to the president and ask if we can do it. And so they did. I believe it was in the middle of the night or late at night, and they got back to President uh, Obama, and, he, and, and Cartwright said to him, are you willing to reconsider? Uh, and the president said, well, let's go through the the facts here. Are we sure this would be legal? Are we sure uh, that this is who we think it is? Are we sure that uh, this person uh, really poses the kind of threat that is being asserted? Uh, all the answers were yes, and he said, okay, uh, I'll reconsider, and, and they did it. They went after the person. They got him. Since we're talking about drones on our program today, I'm just curious, between the time that Petraeus spotted that clear shot on the uh, target and the time that the target was killed, how many hours are we talking about? I don't know exactly, but I think we're talking about a, you know, a few hours, if that. Daniel Clydman, the author of Kill or Capture, The War on Terror and the Soul of the Obama Presidency. Thanks for speaking with us. Absolutely. Now, we reached out to both the CIA and the Pentagon to discuss their respective drone operations. The CIA declined to comment, and the Defense Department said it's not in a position to discuss target selection, rules of engagement for drone pilots, or the command structure for making strike decisions. For issues relating to the legality and ethics of the strikes, we were referred to the White House. Our request for comment there is still pending. So yesterday we heard Nigerian-American writer Teju Cole read some short, short stories that he's tweeted about drones. Cole gained notoriety a few years ago for his first novel, Open City. Tweeting about drones might seem like an odd, abbreviated follow-up, but to Cole, Twitter is a perfect platform to instantly reach his followers, more than 70,000 of them, and spark a conversation. And his tweets, focusing on civilians who die as a result of drone strikes, have a literary twist as well. Call me Ishmael. 
I was a young man of military age. I was immolated at my wedding. My parents are inconsolable. Mother died today. The program saves American lives. That's, that's got such an eerie effect, taking these uh, great novels in their first lines and then morphing them with these headlines from drone strikes. I mean, some, some are recognizable. I think our listeners will recognize Moby Dick by Melville and Camus' A Stranger. What was the idea and why these particular novels? I started thinking about something uh, which, in my mind, I called the empathy gap between what was happening militarily uh, with global war and terror and uh, the attitude, or in fact, lack of attitude, that many people had towards what was going on. You know, my background is, is literature, I'm a writer, and so my intervention tends to be literary. There is something about reading great works of literature that first and foremost is about identifying. We come to hold the characters as in some way like us. Meanwhile, if we hear that a drone strike killed three people in Yemen, uh, as happened, by the way, on Inauguration Day. That is so abstract. It almost means nothing, and therefore we feel almost nothing. Teju Cole, when did you first become aware of drones? I think I started to think about them towards the end of the, of the Bush years. And then, uh, you know, in the past few years, they've really gotten ramped up. We have this strange situation now where so much of the killing is being done by people who are very, very far away from the battlefield. Um, and this puts us into a real um, ethical conundrum. What does it mean when we're causing directly the deaths of uh, civilians um, at basically zero risk to ourselves, to our soldiers. How does that affect the ethics of war? You know, if I can uh, be so bold as to put on my comparative literature hat for a moment, um, I, I could see some symbolism here that by taking these novels that many of us know so well and truncating them to a single line with this explosive afterthought about drones, you're kind of doing to great books what drones often do to people and via remote control. Writing these things, thinking about these things, um, is a cause of uh, great sorrow. This is not, you know, this is not a, a clever uh, uh, Twitter intervention. Um, I think the word Twitter might even sort of uh, put some people off because they think it's just about writing about what you had for breakfast or something. Um, no, this is this is a way of expressing some of the confusion and grief that we feel when we think about the very confused state of what our leaders mean when they talk about keeping us safe. Mm. You, you suggested that Twitter may strike some a, as a kind of banal platform to undertake this project, uh, but this isn't the first time you're tweeting short stories. You've got this uh, Small Fates project, which are compact stories taken from overlooked news stories. Why Twitter? Well, I'll answer your question in two ways. I think one is why Twitter, and then the other is why not Twitter? Um, I have a decent-sized followership on it, and I have the, the opportunity to put into the minds of people who are reading me sentences of my own devising. Um, and this, is, this is a strange kind of power. I generally try not to do too much preaching on my Twitter account, but rather to tell stories mm. to, you know, to try to close that empathy gap between us and those people that we think of as them. So, so do you think by taking this literary view of, of drone strikes, if you will, uh, it's going to close that empathy gap? At best, it'll maybe for, you know, a handful of people provoke a second thought. Teju Cole, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was nice to talk to you. Thank you. As you heard, literary figures feature prominently in writer Teju Cole's drone tweeting. Cole also told us what Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway symbolizes in his project. That's at theworld.org. 
Flying drones, by definition, is done remotely. Often the pilots are thousands of miles away from where the unmanned aircraft are actually flying. Some even compare the job to playing video games. To get a pilot's point of view, the BBC recently spoke with Dave Cummins. He's a former drone pilot who originally flew traditional military aircraft in Britain's Royal Air Force. For a time, Cummins was stationed here in the U.S. at Creech Air Force Base outside Las Vegas. He flew drones in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Cummins remembers driving from his house in Las Vegas to The Box, the place on the base where he and his two-man crew flew missions. It's a good drive, that one hour, because it takes you from your house, from your family, from the the dishes and the cleaning of the car, and and it gives you time to adjust uh, to where you're going to be effectively entering a ground control station in a combat zone. Cummins says he could spend up to 12 straight hours flying once he entered the box. It's fairly spacious, unlike most aircraft. Um, But we try and give the atmosphere of an aircraft. It's, It's dimmed, it's dark, it has the normal running noises of computers in the background. And um, lots and lots and lots, as you can imagine, computer screens. The chat, we try and keep to a minimal, like any aircraft. When you're flying, you're concentrating on the operation. Cummins told the BBC that it's a strange feeling being so far removed from the action, but he rejects the idea that flying an unmanned aerial vehicle, or UAV, is akin to playing a video game. In one sense, I I equate a UAV, an unmanned system, to to a sniper who's sitting two kilometres away on the hilltop. We... um, we're involved in the battle. We uh, are a part of the, va- the battle. And I think in Afghanistan in particular, the um, IED threat to our, to our friendlies, the, um, the remote detonations that were killing our friendlies, meant that al-Qaeda had a, a, an unfair advantage, if you like. And, and I think unmanned systems went some way to evening up that problem. Dave Cummins now works for a company working on civilian applications for drones. He expects it to be a huge growth market in coming years. The possibilities for drones, it seems, are endless. You can join an online conversation right now about the rise of drones and its implications. The world's Jason Margolis and Arun Roth join a moderated discussion with our partners from the PBS program Nova. They're all standing by. You can join in the chat or submit a question. All of that's happening now at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A top prosecutor in Spain recently called corruption a cancer that destroys democracy. There's been a rash of high-profile corruption scandals in Spain recently. Some involve top political leaders. And that led our reporter in Spain, Jerry Haddon, to wonder if corruption is getting worse there or if it's just that more cases are coming to light because of the economic crisis. It's both things, according to Spanish journalists and researchers. There is more corruption now than, say, 20 years ago. There's a famous singer accused of embezzling from an artist's association. Then the granddaddy of them all, a former treasurer of Spain's ruling popular party, accused of stashing $30 million in public funds in a secret Swiss account. Spaniards have been left reeling of late by the sheer number of corruption cases, most involving the political class. The data we have uh, is that more or less there are around uh, 800 politicians now investigated. 800 politicians, 
That's Manuel Vioria, an expert on corruption at Rey Juan Carlos University in Madrid. Vioria is also a researcher for Transparency International. He says every country has corruption, but the types differ. In Greece, for example, you have to pay cash bribes to see a doctor. In Spain, it's all about pilfering public coffers. The most important problem in Spain is the political system, and in especial the political parties. Vioria says they sometimes fund themselves through illegal means. They use uh, the urban planning, they use uh, sometimes money from the European Union for professional education. They'll take that money and use it to fund the party. The party. Vioria says corruption has risen in Spain, as have the amounts of money involved. Veteran Spanish investigative reporter Eduardo Martín de Pozuelo says in some ways this is good news, an indication that Spain's 35-year-old democracy is maturing. En un principio... He says, we've long thought it was a good aspect of our new democracy that all these cases come to light, because under the dictator, General Francisco Franco, corruption was the essence of the system, and you couldn't speak out against it. Today, of course, you can, and people are finding new ways to do so, besides at traditional street protests. At a recent town hall-style gathering in the city of Terrassa, people vent their anger over local corruption, an elderly gentleman takes the mic and says simply that the country is rotten through. Folks cheer. One of the people leading this meeting is activist-turned-investigative reporter Albano Dante. He runs a website called Café Ambiet, or Coffee with Milk, in Catalan. He's been exposing alleged corruption in public health care, corruption that he says went undetected for years while Spain's economy was growing. In essence, he says, austerity has produced an upside. If there's a river with lots of water and some of it gets diverted away, it's no big deal. But if a river's level suddenly drops and people are thirsty, then we focus on the leaks. Illegal siphoning of public funds has been going on for years. But since there was money, people could steal and maintain public services. Now that there's no money for the services, we're starting to ask questions. Dante spends most of his time traveling from town to town, trying to teach people how to investigate corruption for themselves. And he says it's working almost too well. Our website is a tiny operation, but lately people, whistleblowers, have started to contact us directly, filtering leads to us. We've got so many, we can't handle them all. In the meantime, Spain's federal government is trying to improve transparency with a new law increasing access to public documents. But that doesn't appear enough to make the Swiss account scandal go away. The same ex-treasurer accused of stealing the 30 million there are allegations now that for years he handed out monthly envelopes to party leaders, envelopes stuffed with thousands of dollars in stolen cash. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Italy has its own problems with corruption, made worse in parts of the country by the influence of organized crime, better known as the mafia. Recent scandals over garbage collection in Naples and other cities revealed that the mafia was heavily involved in the refuse industry. Now comes news that the mafia has gotten into the renewable energy business in Sicily. Reporter Anthony Fiola writes about it in The Washington Post. He's just back in London after being on assignment in Sicily. Uh, Anthony, renewable energy in the mafia. I mean, I just have a hard time seeing a mafia boss driving a Prius. 
Well, I'll tell you what, anytime there's money involved, you're not going to find the mafia far behind. And in this particular situation, that's exactly what happened. Alternative energy over the last decade became an incredibly profitable business in Italy. And the mafia sensed money and they went for it. So what, where do they see the money? Is it in solar panels? Is it in windmills, something else? Well, it's both. I mean, effectively what we're talking about at its most basic root are land deals. Um, you'd identify a suitable spot for alternative energy, say a wind farm or a solar farm, that might not be worth much otherwise. You'd contact, maybe pressure the landlord if you didn't already have control over the land. Then you'd sign up a corrupt bureaucrat who would speed up approval of green licenses, something that in Sicily might typically take years, if ever, to get. And once you had the permit, that land that you had would be worth multiple times more. And you'd turn around and you'd sell it to alternative energy companies. Some of the companies knew what they were getting into. Others say they didn't. So with the mafia involved in renewable energy, does that mean this is a legitimate business? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm trying I mean, to compute I think this. What they were getting involved in at its most basic level, like I said, were these land deals. But there is some evidence to suggest that there's fraud happening on a broader basis. I mean, for instance, you know, if you have solar panels in Italy and you're generating power, you can sell that power back to the national grid and make some money off of that. And there's some evidence to suggest that the mafia was actually doing that as well. Now, is everyone who's involved in alternative energy in Italy involved in some sort of corruption? Of course not. But at the same time, in Sicily, what you find is that roughly 30% of the wind farms on the island now uh, have been seized by the government. Well, this must be a tough one for the government to square because obviously they want renewable energy production. At the same time, they don't want the mafia being involved with it. Well, that's exactly right. One of the problems with having the mafia involved in it, it distorts the market and it makes it even harder for legitimate alternative energy entrepreneurs to rise up and form their own businesses. I spoke to one legitimate businessman in Sicily who had been in the wind farm and solar panel industry there and had been brutally harassed by the mafia for the last several years because he wasn't willing to play ball with them. He had one of his wind farms, for instance, attacked by an arson, doing $4 million worth of damage. Mm -hmm. And the threats that were made to his family and to his own well-being were so strong that he ended up having to go into some kind of government protection for two years. So how did Italian officials figure out that the mafia was involved and have they shut down these wind farms now? They've shut down some of them, and some of them they've actually handed over to the state. And what we're talking about is a years-long sting operation. I mean, these operations date back, in some cases, to the mid-2000s. What they've done is they've meticulously placed wiretaps inside of vehicles uh, on street corners in some cases. Wow. And they've developed a network of informants who have gradually been giving them the information that they need to make the arrests. There have been two waves of arrests so far, one 2010 and one just last December. And my understanding is that there are more coming down the pike. Anthony Fiola, the London bureau chief for the Washington Post, telling us about the mafia's recent forays into renewable energy in Sicily. Thanks a lot. Thank you. News headlines are next. You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, the Pentagon makes it official. Women can now serve in frontline combat roles. This Marine says it's about time. Leadership is not just about being strong. It's not about having the biggest biceps. It's about being able to react under pressure, make decisions when bullets are flying around you. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Female service members have faced the reality of combat, proven their willingness to fight, and yes, to die, to defend their fellow Americans. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta made it official this afternoon. Women in the U.S. military will now be able to serve in many frontline combat roles. Not all, but many. Some exceptions will be decided over the next few months by the Pentagon. U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Captain Zoe Bedell is one of four plaintiffs who sued to strike down the Pentagon's policy, barring women from some combat roles. She served two tours of duty in Afghanistan. Captain Bedell says banning women from direct combat roles made it much harder for them to climb the career ladder. 80% of generals come from combat arms, which are these jobs that are closed. So you can see the promotion funnel narrows for women, and there are fewer jobs available at the top levels. But additionally, women were supposedly barred from serving in combat, but the fact was they were serving in combat. Anyone in Iraq and Afghanistan these days is in a combat zone and is in danger of being shot at or uh, being targeted by a roadside bomb. I really want to unpack the reality of women being on the ground. What are the scenarios that might cause you anxiety? When I was part of the female engagement team, my Marines and I were living with male Marines in very small bases and operating with them and patrolling with them every day. So those things are already happening. So there will be a little bit of adjustment for some of the men who haven't done that yet or who haven't been in those situations. But the fact is men have already made those adjustments too, and they've proven that we can work in these environments professionally. Give us a couple of examples of things that happened to you in in Afghanistan that could have been awkward situations and maybe were or weren't. Well, I mean, there's a sort of infinite opportunity for awkwardness, right? Anytime you're living with someone for an extended period of time, one potential challenge is when you're patrolling and you have to relieve yourself, you know, that's you're in the open and it's, it's hard to do. So there can be some difficulty there. But I know women would sort of band together. They'd hold up a tarp and you make things happen. Women have been doing this for the last 10 years and are proving that some of these what seem, I guess, to people to be insurmountable obstacles are really not that big of a deal. Then there's a critique of the undeniable physical differences between men and women, upper body strength, quite different. What are the differences that you accept between men and women in combat that give men a physical advantage? There are absolutely some women who aren't going to be able to do this work, just like there are some men who can't do the work. But right now, the fact is that all men are let in, regardless of whether or not they've been evaluated to be able to do it, and no women are. That's what's changing here, is that women will now have a chance to prove that they are one of those people who can do that work, and then given the opportunity to do it if they can. What is the toughest thing you've ever had to do in the field where you really felt challenged? There are a lot of different challenges that you come across all the time. I mean, some of them are those physical challenges where you are just on a long hike and your gear weighs a ton and you're exhausted and your feet hurt, and those are incredibly challenging. But other challenges are more mental. You know, it's a stressful situation. You've been going without sleep for a long time. You know, leadership is not just about being strong. It's not about having the biggest biceps. It's about being able to react under pressure, make decisions when bullets are flying around you. And those are absolutely qualities that women possess just as much as men do. I was going to ask you, do you think women may be in a better position to uh, handle the mental stress than men? 
you know, I think everyone is sort of equally well qualified here. The military gives you training on this. They help prepare people. There are certainly some advantages women probably have, and there are some advantages men probably have. And mm -hmm. I think in business settings, for example, they've seen that the different approaches to problems complement each other and make units stronger. That's what I've seen so far in the military as well. You've been out there in the field in Afghanistan. What was the reality for you in that respect? forces there are there doing a lot of what was formerly called hearts and mind and winning the hearts of the population. And if you come in with a whole group of men in a society where men can't even interact with the women, you know, it doesn't look very sincere because you're trying to help their population, but you're only trying to help 50% of them. The other thing is we were able to use some of those cultural stereotypes, use them against them to some extent, right? Because they think that women are nurturing and they're healers and they're there to support and they're not aggressive. So when they bring women in, it sort of lowers the tension to some extent. So we found that coming in as women actually helped us in that environment. It would really change the tone of some engagements in a positive way. Finally, Captain Bedell, I have to ask you what you think uh, the lifting of the ban will mean for the frequency of sexual assault in the military. I mean, it's already out of control by many accounts. Over 3,000 cases reported in 2011. What's going to happen to that? The policy as it used to stand, it justified the behavior of treating women as, as second-class citizens. If you're now saying, no, women are equal, they have a chance to do these jobs, they can compete for these roles, that equality will eventually permeate the organization. So that's not going to be an overnight thing. But I think it's a step in the right direction of, of really the organization seeing women as equal and thus the individuals in that organization adopting that policy or that, that belief as well. U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Captain Zoe Bedell, one of four plaintiffs who challenged the Pentagon's policy, barring women from some combat roles. Captain Bedell, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Our next story is a reminder of what combat soldiers endure. It's a story of two World War II veterans. One of them was Jake McNeese. He died on Monday at the age of 93 at his home in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Back in 1944, he was a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division. McNeese was part Choctaw Indian, and he had an idea how to psych up his squad for their first combat mission, D-Day. Yes, when we got ready to jump into Normandy, all of us had scalp locks. We also had our faces painted. I painted all boys and cut their hair. And uh, it started a fad that is carried on today throughout most airborne units. The scene was caught on camera, Jake and his buddies beside their plane with their mohawks daubing each other with war paint. They jumped into Normandy just hours later. I jumped in with 20 men and came out with two. But in fact, another of Jake's band of brothers survived the battle. And I didn't know. I thought that, that Robert was dead up all this time until yesterday when his son called me. Robert Cohn is the other man in our story. Both men spoke to the world on the anniversary of D-Day in 2002, and it was the world's Chris Wolf who tracked them down and arranged their reunion. Chris has this remembrance. Jake McNeese was not what you call a conventional soldier. He and his men didn't believe in doing anything that didn't involve killing the enemy or preparing to kill the enemy. We had no respect or discipline to show to officers or really any of their regulations. We were just a damn good bunch of soldiers. His squad of misfits was nicknamed the Filthy Thirteen, the inspiration for the movie The Dirty Dozen. But Jake says they weren't felons like those in the movie. <laughs> well, we often went AWOL. We, we were called the Filthy Thirteen. We never took care of our barracks or any other thing in sanitation, and we were always restricted to camp. But we went AWOL every weekend that we wanted to, and we stayed as long as we wanted to return back 
because we knew that they needed us badly, you know, for combat, and it'd just be a few days in the brig. We stole jeeps, we stole trains, and we blew up barracks, we blew down trees, and we stole the colonel's whiskey, (laughs) (laughs) and things like that. McNeese's ability to lead and inspire led him to get promoted, frequently. But just as frequently, he was busted down to Buck Private. He and his men were demolition saboteurs attached to the 3rd Battalion of the 506th Parachute Infantry for D-Day. It was truly a suicide mission, and I lost most of my men within the first two hours. His comrade, Bob Cohn, got separated from the group as soon as he left the plane. Let's hear a little of the interview that Lisa Mullins did with Bob and Jake back in 2002. When, before yesterday, was the last time that you uh, you did hear from him or, or even saw him? The last time I saw him was the night we jumped out of the C-47 going into France. 58 years ago today. 58 years ago today. Okay. Bob Cohn, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Excellent. So, Jake, as you know, is on the line now, and you spoke with him for the first time yesterday. That must have been a pretty extraordinary phone call you guys had. <clears throat> yes, it was, and... Uh... Unfortunately, I had no way of knowing uh, where and when and how I could get in touch with anybody. What happened to you? What happened? Well, yeah, 58 years ago today, what happened to you? I landed with one other man who I didn't even know to be truthful with, yeah, but he got killed anyway, and uh, I was alone right there. I got hit. You You got hit by gunfire? I got hit in the right arm. I got shot. And I got to a farm nearby, you know what I mean? And uh, I stayed there for two or three days, and uh, it seems that the farmer turned me in, and that's how I got captured. We don't have time to replay the whole conversation, but you can listen online at theworld.org. To cut a long story short, Bob was reported dead, and for almost 60 years he didn't seek out his former comrades. In some way he felt he'd let them down. But Bob and Jake's friendship was renewed that day in 2002. I will email bomb today about six or eight pictures of him taken about five hours before he jumped into Normandy. With a mohawk. And that will be emailed in to him today. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate it, Jack, and say hello to Martha for me, too. Sure will, boy. And it you was tell, real tell. nice talking to you and <clears throat> something that's really something I'll remember the rest of my life. Well, you tell Ed, your son, and all your family, your daughters, and all of them that we send our regards and, and our thanks for you and the service that you did for this nation. Uh, okay, Jake. Jake McNeese passed away Monday. His old friend Bob Cohn died in June 2010. Shortly after, we received this message from a friend of the Cohn family. Just to let you know, Bob has had a funeral with full military honours, due in part to what you did for him. That interview started the ball rolling. His son said it was the best thing that happened to his dad in his last years. He had a whale of a time with his old army buddies. Thought you might like to know. I did, and I have to say, it was the best day's work I ever did. For The World, this is Chris Wolfe. Now, when a person goes missing, the family often reports that not knowing what happened is excruciating, at times even more excruciating, they say, than knowing with certainty that a loved one is dead. Every year, hundreds of migrants die trying to illegally cross the U.S.-Mexico border. We know because their bodies are found in the desert. 
But because many remains are unrecognizable, the families don't know what happened, only that the migrants never arrived at their destination. That's where Robin Reinecke comes in. She's a cultural anthropologist with the Pima County Missing Migrant Project in Tucson, Arizona. Her task? To identify the dead, often through the few possessions that are found with the remains. Reinecke says the number of unidentified bodies in Arizona alone is staggering. The Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner has records for 767 unidentified remains dating from 1990 to the end of 2012. You know, it's important to note that the majority of those have been found between the years 2000 and 2012. And who finds the remains in the desert? A lot are found by Border Patrol. Also, most of the remains in Pima County, where I work, a lot of the remains are found on the Tohono O'odham Indian Reservation. Ranchers, hikers, hunters are also finding remains. The bodies arrive to your lab. Do you intervene at any point in between, or do you have to conduct forensic investigations? I don't do that part. The part that I'm really focused on is actually well after the bodies are brought in. And once we've basically determined that the body is going to be difficult to identify, or once the body has been there at the morgue for a while and still is unidentified. And that's when I get involved as far as the dead. Robin, I I imagine that you start accumulating enough evidence uh, from some of these uh, victims that people's real-life narratives start occurring in your mind. Yeah. Things that really stand out to me, I think, are the things that relate to my life. Washington State driver's license, for instance. Um, A lot of these people are carrying blockbuster cards. You know, they're carrying their Fry's membership cards, Sam's Club cards, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that 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 you or I would have in our wallet. When I find stuff like that, it breaks down the the boundaries between my life and, and their life. You know, I found pictures of dogs, comic strips. There's also a lot of photographs of people's family members of their kids, and you can tell that they're kind of dog-eared and that they've been worn and touched and carried. You can sense people's presence in things, just just the nature of a very worn shoe, a belt that has always been used at the same exact notch, Mm. even though the person was found as bones. And so we can kind of start to estimate maybe how how big the person was. So some of the things really help us, um, like that, for instance, in terms of identification. And then some of them, I think, are more symbolic or meaningful and help us to learn about what's happening on the border. So uh, when you have one of these challenging cases and and it is finally you're able to identify that you then contact the relatives, what do you say to them? Typically, when I'm involved in this type of case, I've been in touch with the relatives before I'm able to give them that news. So for the families that I've actually spoken with, I will call them to find out if we can proceed with the comparison Mm -hmm. um, or if, if we can rule that person out as a match. It's never as simple as the phone call in the night that you dread and then you have the horrible news and then it's over. For these families, unfortunately, the possibility of the horrible news goes on sometimes for months because we're trying to get dental records or we're trying to ask them about tattoos. We're trying to find out if they can go to a local station in their country or in their state and submit a DNA sample and go through the bureaucracy of of a DNA comparison. This sounds like really intense work. Does it spill over when you get home? I mean, is there a particular case that stays with you? Yeah, definitely. I uh, One case that, that sticks out in my mind is a, a friend of mine whose sister 
went missing. I say a friend of most of these people. I, I wouldn't say that, but I established particularly a close bond with this woman. And her sister went missing in um, 2005, and we still haven't found her body. I'm looking regularly for her, and um, I know exactly what she was wearing. She was wearing white tennis shoes and blue jeans and a jacket that her son had given her. She was actually crossing with a very young child who made it, and he had to leave his mother behind in the desert. That's intense stuff. Yeah. Robin Reinecke, thanks very much. Thank you, Marco. Robin Reinecke with the Pima County Missing Migrant Project in Tucson, Arizona. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Hope you're ready for a super fast geo quiz because that's what this music is telling me. We want you to name the second longest river in Africa that empties into the Indian Ocean. That's key. The longest is the Zambezi. The one we're focusing on zigzags through parts of South Africa, Botswana, and Zimbabwe before reaching the Indian Ocean in Mozambique. About a thousand miles in all, and right now it's seriously flooded, which has forced evacuations and caused all sorts of problems. For the answer now, we've called up the world's Anders Kelto in South Africa. Anders, help us out here with the answer today. Uh, the answer to the geo-quiz is the Limpopo River. Limpopo River, it borders Kruger National Park in northeastern South Africa and is formed by the confluence of the Mariko River and the Crocodile River. And I assume there are crocodiles in that river. There are. It's, it's kind of a big news story in South Africa right now. There's a crocodile farm that was forced, at least so says the owner, to release all of their crocodiles. They have about 15,000 crocodiles in this farm. They were worried that rising water levels were going to destroy the pens that these crocodiles are kept in and crush them to death. So they thought it would be better to just open the gates and release them. So literally 15,000 crocodiles were released by this one farm. And for the last few days, the owners of that farm uh, have been going around and trying to reclaim and recollect their crocodiles. 15,000 crocodiles. So, I mean, how do they go about trying to corral all these crocodiles again? That part is not clear to me. They say that it's easier to catch them at night because you can shine a light and their eyes, which tend to stick out above the water, glow a bright red color. I don't know how they actually round them up. I guess you'd have to watch some old episodes of The Crocodile Hunter to, to figure that one out. But they say that they've captured several thousand over the past few days, but they say more than half of those 15,000 are still on the loose. Have you heard of any consequences of these crocodiles wandering onto people's property? And I mean, have there been any deaths? There haven't been reports of any deaths. The owners of this crocodile farm said that when they went to help some of their friends in a neighboring area because of this extreme flooding, they found the people on the roof of their house surrounded by very high water levels and crocodiles were swimming all around them. So they said that was obviously very nerve wracking, but fortunately no one was harmed. Uh, there was one report of a crocodile being found on a school rugby field 75 miles away from this farm. And of course, the biggest threat is this is an area with lots of farms that rely on this river for water. And a lot of these farming areas have become flooded and crocodiles are being found along the banks of the river in these farming areas. So it's posing a threat to farmers, maybe even posing a threat to some students and to people that live all along the length of this river. What does this uh, crocodile breeding farm actually do with the crocodiles? Yeah, well, the crocodiles are used for their skins. They, they make a lot of belts, boots, hats, handbags, purses, that sort of thing. Mostly the skins are exported. I guess they send most of them to Europe and Asia 
and they're then converted into those products. So they're mostly harvested for their skin. And they say that there are roughly 500,000 crocodiles in South African crocodile farms. So it's a relatively big business. How confident is this crocodile farm in capturing all the crocodiles that have escaped? <laughs> well, it remains to be seen. I don't know how they know if they're capturing their own crocodiles or just random crocodiles that were living in the wild. I don't know if they have the things marked. They're sort of you know, refusing to speak to the media much at this point. They're just focusing on cleaning up this mess. The world's Anders Kelto in South Africa. If you happen to head anywhere back to the Limpopo River, Anders, uh, you might want to think about a pogo stick. <laughs> I will. I won't be crossing that border anytime soon. Thanks for your time. Sure. We end today's program with a story out of Canada about a song that began as a protest but has now been adopted by the other side. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Montreal singer David Hodges started performing the song in question last fall. It was just after Quebec separatists had won provincial elections there, partly on the promise that they would further protect the French language. Hodges was concerned that the separatists were sending the message to him and other English speakers that they weren't welcome in Quebec. So he wrote the song, a bilingual song called Notre Home, Our Home. He performed it with singer Stephanie Parnell and talked to the CBC about it. No matter how far I may go, my heart will always know a place where I call home is still finding its way. It's, you know, delivering a message to the English people that we are here, this is our home, we have an identity, we are people, and it's like, you know, it's about spreading that message of bringing people together. That's really what it comes down to, especially with what's going on right now in politics. A lot of people are getting discouraged, and they feel like, you know, that uh, the language laws are going to be enforced a lot more, and it's going to push the, peop the English people, you know, it's going to push the people outside and, like, not consider Quebec our home. So that was back in September. Since then, Quebec's separatist government has pushed ahead on the language front. It has introduced a bill that would, among other things, strip as many as 90 towns of their bilingual status, meaning that they could only communicate with residents in French. With all that going on, it's not a surprise that Notre Home has become popular. Now, the idea of the song was always to make English speakers feel at home in Quebec. So who should decide to back the song and underwrite a tour of Hodges and his band, but Quebec's separatist government? We want to give the signal, you know, you're here to stay. We want you to be here to stay. This is Jean-Francois Lisey, Quebec's minister responsible for the province's English-speaking community at last week's official announcement. Lisey later told the CBC he was impressed by the song's video, which shows young Montrealers of all colors playing together in a park. When they showed it to me at first last, uh, last fall, I thought, you know, that was a great way to say uh, to anyone who would doubt it that Anglo-Quebecers are here at home forever. And if the intention is to make them feel at home, it's not the government's only intention. Once we are secure in the fact that we're all Quebecers. We're going to have a number of issues that we should deal with one at a time and not believe that every issue 
is, a, is a, an attack on our identity. In other words, that new language law reinforcing French is coming down the pike, and many English speakers aren't going to like it. One mayor of a small town that currently sends out a bilingual newsletter to its residents sees it this way. Instead of composing a song, he says, maybe they could let us communicate with our English-speaking community in our newsletter. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. For more stories on the world's languages, check out our podcast, The World in Words. Just go to theworld.org slash language. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.